Our call to worship comes from Psalm 148, verses 1 through 5. Would you please stand for God's call to worship? Praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. Would you please join me as we worship God? We'll sing hymn 110, which is hallelujah, praise Jehovah. Let's sing hymn 110.
Pray with me. God, your name is to be exalted this morning because you have called us here to do that. And so we give you all praise and glory this morning. Would you send your spirit to do that for that end, that you would be glorified not just here but in Louisville and across our world as you send out your people for the laborers are few and the harvest is ready. God, you are preparing us to go out and to spread your word and the gospel. So we pray that you would equip us for that task and that you would fill our hearts as we worship you this morning by your Spirit's power. Would you lead us now in the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples how to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. In your bulletin, if you would remain standing, in your bulletin, the confession of faith we have is from the Apostles' Creed. And I will ask you, believer, uh, what is it that you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. If you're like us, um, you've been in the vicinity of school starting, of sports, you know, they started weeks ago, other activities, there's a lot going on right now outside of the church and also in the church, and uh, you might just be thankful for this opportunity to sit in church and to simply worship God. And it probably won't shock you to realize that you may not have spent much time in prayer this week. We had a busy week, and I'm speaking mostly about myself. And you might not have had an opportunity especially to confess your sins, to come before God and to confess, to repent, to ask for his help. And the Apostles' Creed, we just confess, has a state, our agreement, that the forgiveness of sins is biblical and God-given. And we might think simply that, yes, God does forgive my sin, and then we move on. It's gloriously true, but if we don't bring ourselves before God, if we don't bring our lives and our sin and our hearts before God, we're giving up opportunities for the Spirit of God to nourish us, to encourage us, to embolden us, to comfort us, to strengthen our faith. We can say when we come to the Lord that even in our sin that we confess We believe you will forgive us, and we know you will forgive us because Jesus took that sin upon himself on the cross and bore the penalty of it. So we're going to take a minute to confess our sins silently 
and individually. And as we do that, we don't do that expecting punishment from God. We expect forgiveness and the grace of God to cover our sin. And we can ask the Holy Spirit to help us in this, to help us repent of our sins and to lead us in this prayer. So let's take a few moments now to pray silently, to come before the throne of God silently and individually, and then I'll lead us in prayer. Let's pray now. Dear Father, we pray, and then as we read in your word, uh, this is what you have told us, that this is the message you proclaim to us, that God is light, and in you, God, is no darkness at all. And if we say we have fellowship with you while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as you are in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, your Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make you a liar, and your word is not in us. So, Lord, we pray this morning, would you make us honest, as honest as as the young children in this room who speak the truth without any hesitation. Would you help us to be honest with you first about our struggles, our temptations, our sin, and give us the gift of repentance so that we can turn from our sin by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, we're amazed that as we sit here, you don't lay our sins upon us as a burden to bear because you bore our sins upon yourself, and you give us peace. Jesus, you never punish us for our sins because you have been punished once and for all. You discipline us as children. You teach us your ways. You help us to walk in grace. We pray, God, as we remember your incredible love for us and all that you're doing in our lives, that you would help us to be affected by it this morning as we open your word, as we hear your word preached, as we sing hymns that are created from your word. Would you move us? Would you move us first to repentance and faith? Would you move us to restore the relationships in our lives that we have damaged and hurt Would you cause us to be a light in the world, a light in our schools and workplaces in which we can acknowledge that we are flawed and sinful people, but we are loved by a perfect and gracious and holy God more than we can ever comprehend in this life. So God, as we go through this worship service, would you comfort your people? Would you answer the prayers of our hearts that often go unsaid? And would you uh, 
do these things for your glory. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Please pray with me. God, as we give our tithes and offerings this morning, uh, would you show us your blessing? Would you use these tithes and offerings to do incredible things, um, to do mundane things, to uh, help the needs of those in our church and around our community, to do the things um, that we will likely not even hear about? God, we entrust our tithes and offerings to you now, and we dedicate them to you, and we pray you would make great use of them as we know you will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would remain standing, you'll find an insert in your bulletin for our next hymn, which is In Christ Alone. Let's worship together with In Christ Alone with the handout.
Well, I wanted to say a couple of things just to follow up on our announcements before I read our sermon text. One, Cody Ming, Ming Mug and Coffee, thank you for providing coffee for the church. That is not a plug. I just saw him <laughs> carrying his daughter as he was doing the offering and said, I want to say thank you. It's so precious. And the second thing is, on the, uh, the evening worship service starting at 5 o'clock, the session's reasoning behind that. Uh, is that as we approach the fall and days start to get shorter, we would like for some of our members who don't particularly care for driving after dark uh, to be able to make it. And we've been so pleased with the turnout uh, in this, these past two months on Sunday nights, we want to keep that rolling. So I just wanted to say that to eliminate some questions you might be asking me at the door on the way out. Um, and in terms of the pictures, I will take a selfie with you after the service if you want to. But moving on. Genesis chapter 1 is going to be our scripture, verses 4 through 13. Before I read it, let me pray for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for lavishing your great grace and mercy upon us. Thank you for the blessed and holy gift that is the word of God that we neglect to our peril. Help us now to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest uh, these words that are your gift to us. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis 1, beginning in verse 4. Hear God's word. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning, the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And this ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. So we began last week... To look at the book of Genesis, I'm calling this series Reenchanting the World, and I just want it to be a reminder to us that everything that exists isn't here by chance, isn't here by natural processes. It is here because an almighty, all powerful, eternal God spoke, and all of this, all that we see, came into existence. Now, as we look at the creation story, I. I Really, I'm going to be talking about all of chapter 1 and part of chapter 2 today, but for the sake of time, I shortened the reading. Now, in the rest of the book of Genesis, 
the rest of the Old Testament, we're going, uh, the book is going to warn us about the horrors of creation. But chapters 1 and chapter 2 show us, before the fall, the goodness of creation. Chapter 3 and onward, there are going to be serpents and sea monsters, whirlwinds and wars, floods and famines, plagues, fire raining down from heaven. And man himself, we're going to see man fall into sin, be tempted by the devil. We're going to see that one of the first human beings who ever existed rises up and murders his own brother. We're going to see sin and debauchery of all sorts as you read through this book. But Genesis 1 and 2 are telling us that it wasn't always that way. That God created a good world. He created man and woman to be good. So why do we need to know this? Before we get into all the bad, why do we need to know that God made a good creation? Well, that's the question that we're going to try to answer today. So under two points. Number one, the goodness of creation. And number two, the fallenness and hope of creation. So first, the goodness of creation. The creation, all things that exist, were meant to be a reflection of God's being and character. God is good. God is wise. God is loving. He wants everything to have a home. You read carefully Genesis 1. He meticulously designs this earth and really the universe so that everything will be put in its proper place. It's a well-ordered place. There's a place for the sun and the stars. There's a place for the earth. There's a place for man. He creates a lavish garden before it, that he can insert man into so that he'll have a perfect place to live. He, he creates woman so that man will have a companion. And, of course, the woman will have a companion in man as well. <clears throat> C.S. Lewis, commenting on the creation, says, Christianity believes that God made the world, that space and time, heat and cold, and all the colors and tastes, and all the animals and vegetables are things that God made up out of his head as a man makes up a story. And the idea is, like a story reflects the mind and the experience of the author, so this creation reflects the mind and the experience of a good God. So in our text, and again, we're going beyond the end of the reading in verse 13 through the rest of the chapter, but six times in Genesis 1, it says that God looked at all that he had made and saw that it was good. And then the chapter ends in verse 31 with a seventh proclamation by God, this time that he looked at all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. He wants to leave no doubts what God sees when he sees his creation is a good creation. <clears throat> Exceedingly good. Abundantly good. Good to the max. That's the language that's used in verse 31. Now, the best explanation of God's creation and the goodness of creation that I've ever read is by Jonathan Edwards, who's an 18th century preacher, philosopher, theologian, uh, jack-of-all-trades, renaissance man, whatever you want to call him. He was brilliant probably the most brilliant man that the United States, or the, the American soil, let's say, has produced in modern times. He wrote a book with a lovely title called A Dissertation Concerning the End for Which God Created the World. And uh, we're not as good as making titles now. Uh, some of his sermon titles would take up our whole bulletin. Um, but it's a brilliant little book. And he talks about why 
did God create the world? What's the purpose for which God created the world? Now, his ultimate answer to that is the same answer that our catechism gives, that God created the world for his glory and our enjoyment, that we would glorify and enjoy him through creation and as created beings. But this is a quote about what... You have to be really careful with your language when you start talking about what God did in eternity past because you can fall off a cliff of heresy really quick. But he's asking what prompted God in his eternal counsel and his eternal decrees, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit discussing their plans for this creation. Uh, what led to it? And here's his answer. As there is an infinite fullness of all possible good in God... So it seems a thing amiable and valuable in itself that this infinite, he's talking about God, this infinite fountain of good should send forth abundant streams. Thus it is fit, since there is an infinite fountain of light and knowledge, that this light should shine forth in beams of communicated knowledge and understanding. As there is an infinite fountain of holiness, moral excellence, and beauty, that so it should flow out in communicated holiness, and that as there is an infinite fullness of joy and happiness, so these should have an emanation and become a fountain flowing out in abundant streams as beams from the sun. So what is Edward saying? Uh, simply put, it is as if out of God's fullness, God is full of glory, holiness, goodness, joy, happiness, it's fitting that since he's full of those things, he should externally manifest them. And Edwards is saying that's what he's doing in creation. He's wanting to show through the theater and of his majesty and glory, the creation, an external glimpse of who he is internally. And so you have to be careful with that analogy because Edwards is not meaning to say that creation is somehow God, like pantheists um, in Eastern religions say, or that creation is a part of God, or that God is a part of creation. Now, his point is that creation exists as an external means to show us the internal glory of God. So it, it sounds complicated when you read him, but it's a really simple idea at the end of the day, and it can totally change how you look at everything. You say, why is there a sunset? Why is there anything? And it's to visibly and externally manifest the glory and the grandeur and the attributes of God. That's why something exists rather than nothing. Jesus said that out of the abundance of the heart, a person speaks. And so that reveals who they are. And so out of the abundance of God's heart, he speaks. And so creation comes into existence to show us a glimpse of who he is. This is exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 1 when he says that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that now mankind was at, is without excuse. No one can stand before God in the judgment and say, I needed proof, because he spoke and all this existed. This is the proof. We're the living proof. Everything that we see is living proof. So the creation was good because God is good, and creation was meant to reflect who he is. Let me illustrate this before we end the point. So when you learn how to write a story, I was fortunate to take a, a short story writing class <clears throat> with a great author uh, at Millsaps College a number of years ago. And I remember one of the first things you learn, and it helped me as a preacher, 
is if you're going to write good stories, you need to learn to show rather than tell. You don't say, the man was tall. You say, the man was a skyscraper in the midst of hobbits. That's showing that the man was tall rather than just telling it. So, I heard John Piper a number of years ago, an illustration that really impacted me. He said that he was going to speak at a conference. He was staying in a nice hotel that the organizers of the conference had set up for him. And he walks outside, and there's the swimming pool. And the swimming pool is just within feet of the ocean. And he said he looked down at the swimming pool, and then he looked at the ocean, and then he looked down at the swimming pool, then he looked out at the ocean, and he said, man pool, God pool. And he asked himself the question, why would I swim in this when I can swim in that? All right, why would I stare at this when I can stare at that? But the idea goes for everything. Picture, picture a sink faucet. Glorious, right? I know you just behold the glory of a sink faucet every time you brush your teeth. Now picture Niagara Falls. Man faucet? God faucet. Picture a child on the beach with their little plastic shovel digging a hole as they're building a sandcastle. Picture that hole. Now picture the Grand Canyon. Man faucet? Or Man Canyon? God Canyon. Why do we travel to see Niagara Falls? It's just a big sink faucet, right? Why do we travel to see the Grand Canyon? It's just a hole in the ground. Why do we travel? You know, yeah, we'll go across town to, to swim in a pool, but we'll drive across the country to swim in the ocean. Why? Because these things were created to show us the grandeur and the glory and the goodness of God. That's why. They're Him showing, not telling us how glorious He is. And so the way we relate to this good creation is that it's like this. Imagine walking into the Sistine Chapel. I never have. Some of you have but I hear it's glorious. And you're looking up, and you're beholding the work of a master artist, and you're in awe, and you're in wonder, and you're never going to forget it. You walk by a thousand paintings in your life. They won't even register. They won't register in your memory bank. You'll never think about them again. But this is an experience you'll never forget. And you see a man standing next to you looking around, and you start to make small talk with him. And you introduce yourself, and he introduces himself, and he says, Nice to meet you. I'm Michelangelo. What do you say? Do you at least acknowledge him? Do you say, Oh, great job! That's creation. And God encounters us every day, telling us in Genesis 1 and 2, I did this. Do you acknowledge him? That's Romans 1. That's Genesis 1. Do we acknowledge the goodness of the one who created all of these things? So that's the first point, that this is a good creation. Now I want to talk about the fallenness and hope of creation because Genesis 1 pictures a perfect world while reality shows us an imperfect world. And Genesis 3 will account for that when it tells us that the thorns that infest the ground that the fact that we have to labor and sweat to uh, prepare and earn our food, that that all stems from man's rebellion and sin against this good God who made this great creation. Good creation has been contaminated by 
the sin of man. Now here's how the Apostle Paul describes it. Romans 8, verses 20 and following. Powerful passage. He says the creation, this is what happened in Genesis 3 and onward. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I, you could preach on that for a year. There's so much there. But I want to point out a couple things as we talk about the creation story. First, creation has been subjected to futility. It is in bondage to decay. That's the way Paul describes it. One preacher I listen to regularly calls our age the age of decay because everything's falling apart. Every time I look in the mirror, I'm reminded that everything is falling apart. And Paul says there's a longing in human beings in the midst of the decay for things to be made right. You think about that. That's what I don't have time to get off on a diatribe about this. But so much of what's going wrong in the world is us thinking that we can make the things right, that in the end only God and the gospel can make right. But it's innate in all of us that it needs to be made right, that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. We're in an age of decay and futility. And Paul also says that it's not only us who have this longing, just individual human beings, but it's the creation as a whole. The whole creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth for things to be made right. Verse 22, he says, We know that, all, that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. He's saying, creation is like a mother who's nine months pregnant and ready to pop. That's the way he describes it. In longing that something new might be brought into this world. It wants to give birth to something. Or it's waiting on God, rather, to give birth to something. But what? When I was in college, I, uh, in order to uh, get what I hoped would be an easy science credit, I took a class on natural geography. And we ended up talking a lot in that class about natural disasters and about weather and about storm fronts and all of these things. And I remember reading and being blown away uh, with Romans 8 in my head. When you ask simple questions like, why does a volcano erupt? I mean, the easiest answer is, that there's pressure building up under that volcano, and it's got to get out. The volcano is seeking balance. It's seeking harmony. It's seeking stability. And the only way it can get it is to erupt. And it's the same thing with all natural disasters. Like you take an earthquake. Why? Because there's pressure building up that needs to be released. You take a hurricane. Why? Because the atmosphere is unbalanced, and it's seeking harmony and balance. That's, I think that's what Paul's describing. Everything's off kilter. Everything's off balance, and we're seeking harmony, and we can't seem to find it. When's that balance going to come? That's the question. <clears throat> and Paul's answer, Romans 8, 19, backing up, is the creation is waiting with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. We'll talk about that more in a second. But every earthquake is nature's push for perfection. 
Every hurricane is like nature's Lamaze breathing in anticipation of what Paul calls the revealing of the sons of God. And that verse is so interesting because waiting with eager longing is translating a pair of Greek words that literally mean to crane the neck, to outstretch the neck. He says all of nature has its neck craned in anticipation of this day when the sons of God are going to be revealed. Like Zacchaeus sitting in a tree waiting to see Jesus. Paul says that's creation, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. J.B. Phillips translates the verse, The whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. All of creation is on tiptoes, craning its neck, looking for the day when Christ will return, make things right, and glorify us so that we share fully in his glory and become what we were meant to be from the very beginning of this good creation. John Calvin commenting says, On that day it shall be made known how desirable and blessed our condition will be when we shall put off corruption and put on celestial glory. I don't know if your train of thought coming into church this morning was, boy, I can't wait to put on celestial glory. But Paul's saying that's exactly what we're going to do. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a day not just standing before God, but even standing before your friends, standing before your spouse. And you're perfect. There's no sin. There's no temptation. There's no guilt. There's no shame. There's none of that thing you did 10 years ago that you still haven't lived down popping into the back of your mind because it's all been removed. Every tear has been wiped away. Every sin has been washed And God has tossed them behind his back, never to be forgiven no more. But even now you have been enabled, as you put on celestial glory, to toss them behind your own back, never to be remembered again. How do we know that's going to happen? How do we know that day is coming? Well, there's a lot of ways. But one is simply what Paul says in Colossians 1.18. It says that Christ is the head of the body, the church, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. In other words, when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, when up from the grave he arose, he vowed to bring us with him. He vowed that the glory of the Son of God would be reflected in the glory of his transformed and transfigured brothers and sisters. In all of creation, every stiff breeze, every whirlwind, every earthquake, every tornado, every hurricane... It's creation on its tiptoes saying, you're going to be more than what you are, but you have to keep hoping. This creation was made to be good. We were made to be good, and we need to know it was good once so that we can believe it will be good again because of what Christ has done for us. Now, last thing. How is this to affect how we live? We should be walking around on our tiptoes with creation and anticipation of becoming what we were meant to become. Living in light of the future. Finding hope in the present. C.S. Lewis, I mentioned this quote earlier, but I'm going to add more of his words here. He says, Christianity is a fighting religion. It thinks God made the world. That space and time, heat and cold, and all the colors and tastes, and all the animals and vegetables 
are things that God made up out of his head as a man makes up a story. But Christianity also believes that a great many things have gone wrong with the world that God made and that God insists and insists very loudly on our putting them right again. That's a bit of an overstatement, but there's truth in it. Because Lewis is saying, we're in a creation that was good, and it's going to be good again, but in the meantime, sin has marred it. Things have gone wrong. God wants us to be a part of the process in putting it right. And that's so much of the church's mission. That's why we're proclaiming the gospel. Because it is the only thing that has power by the work of the Spirit to change hearts, to begin us on this path of following Christ that ultimately leads, ultimately leads to glory. So we have a choice. We can walk around on tiptoes because we're scared, because we're walking on eggshells, because the big bad boogeyman of the world is out to get us, right? We can walk around in fear and trembling. And I know with, after I talked about AI some last week, some of you came to me and said you're scared. And I understand it. So I've seen all the sci-fi movies. There's things to be scared of, but that's not what God wants from us. We're not meant to be defeated people walking around on eggshells. Instead, we're meant to be walking around on tiptoes in anticipation of what God is going to do in this world, looking for our part to play in this story that he made up out of his own head, believing that he's going to transform us into what he wants us to be, and nothing can stop him. Our future is so bright we should be wearing sunglasses, right? You believe that, don't you? That your future is bright? And our future isn't just heaven. One author says we don't just get life after death. We get life after life after death. We not only get heaven, we get resurrection. In Matthew 19, 28, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, then His disciples will judge the tribes of Israel. But He says that phrase, In the new world. Literally, in Greek, it's in the regeneration. Like Christians are born again, this whole creation is anticipating the fact that it's going to be born again. Isaiah and Revelation call this the new heavens and the new earths. The marred creation is going to be remade into perfection, into a land where we'll never grow old, in which we will be resurrected in our flesh, and we will see the resurrected Christ. He's the firstborn from the dead. Christ is. And because of that, we don't just get heaven. We get a perfect earth thrown in with it, with resurrected bodies with no aches, no pains, no tears, no sin, no guilt, no shame. And the Apostle John describes that day in that new world to us in 1 John chapter 3. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. Our whole life should be us craning our necks in anticipation of that vision. When we're going to see the Lord Jesus Christ face to face, and if we were to look at ourselves in a mirror shortly thereafter, we're going to find, oh, I'm just like him. The thing I've dreamed of all my life, that I would be like Jesus, it's going to happen. As sure as the sun's going to set today, if Christ doesn't return, it's going to happen. 
We're not yet what we're supposed to be. The world isn't yet what it's supposed to be. But in Romans 8, Paul is telling us it's just over the horizon. The question is, do you have eyes to see it? I love the words of in Christ alone. That's why I wanted to sing it today. When that hymn says, No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I live. Right? I stand. I stand. We are not to be beat down. We are to be people of hope. True story. I know a child, a beautiful little child, who walks around on her tiptoes all the time. And I've thought about asking her, why do you walk around on your tiptoes? Because I don't think I've ever seen anyone else do that. And I had the thought this week, as, this past week as I was preparing this message, I'm not going to ask that child why she walks around on her, on her tiptoes. Instead, I'm going to ask myself, why am I not walking around on mine? Let us pray. Father, thank you for this good creation that you made. It's our sin that has marred it, that has caused the thorns and the thistles and the sweat and the labor and the pain. But we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ has come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. As we live in this age of decay, would you help us to be people of hope who are craning our necks with all of creation, saying, come Lord Jesus, who are craning our necks with all of creation in anticipation of the sight of the glory of Jesus Christ, knowing that when we behold him in an instant, we are going to be changed to reflect his beauty. Help us to be people who know that we are not presently what we were meant to be, but who also know fully that we are going to be that. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing our closing hymn, which is number 94, How Firm a Foundation.
I had a, a church member say to me once that he didn't like how firm a foundation because that last stanza was too repetitive. Do you really need never, no never, no never, forsake? And I say yes. I need never, no never, no never forsake. Receive God's blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all as we continue this, our short earthly pilgrimage. Amen.